African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. What we see here is a clear violation of one, the right to privacy of Tiwonge and uh, Stephen. The position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting. Good morning, good morning and welcome to the Thursday's edition of African Dialogue. Uh, this is uh, Channel Africa, your gateway to the continent, uh, bringing you news uh, from an African perspective. I'm your host, Kumbaro Munjerere, and we are currently on uh, the frequency 9625 kHz on uh, the 31 meter band to Southern Africa. Today on the program, we are looking at the independence of uh, the judiciary on the continent in light of the recently concluded conference of constitutional jurisdictions of Africa. But before we delve deeper into our conversation, let's get the news with Joalani Tulo. Thank you, Kumbelo. Top story is Asawa. The evidence of five previously unreported mass graves of Rohingya Muslims in Myanmar is published in a detailed report. South African President Jacob Zuma meets the National Prosecuting Authority's deadline and submits representations on why he should not be prosecuted for fraud and corruption. And finally, United Nations High Commission for Refugees, Filippo Grandi, to highlight the humanitarian crisis in South Sudan when he visits a refugee camp in Kenya. Good morning. The evidence of five previously unreported mass graves of Rohingya Muslims in Myanmar has been published in a detailed report by the Associated Press. The evidence suggests there was a a massacre during a military attack in last August in the village of Gudayapin in Rakhine State. The BBC's Steve Jackson reports. This detailed report by the Associated Press reconstructs events in the village using satellite photos, time-stamped cell phone footage and interviews with the survivors, who are now in refugee camps in Bangladesh. It concludes that there are at least five mass graves that could contain as many as 400 bodies of Rohingyas. Survivors say the soldiers launched a carefully planned attack on Gudarpin on the 27th of August, killing everyone in sight and then burning down homes. They told AP the soldiers had tried to hide what they'd done, using acid to burn the faces and hands of the victims to prevent them being identified. Myanmar's government has denied all reports of mass killings. United Nations Special Rapporteur on Human Rights in Myanmar, Yang Hee Lee, has warned that the repressive practices of the former military regime are still being used under Aung San Suu Kyi's civilian government. Lee, who has been denied access to Myanmar, accused the security forces of committing atrocities not just against Rohingya Muslims, but also against other ethnic minority groups. Earlier, a petrol bomb was thrown at the lakeside home of Myanmar's leader, Aung San Suu Kyi. She was away from her home at the time. A government spokesperson says the bomb caused minor damage. The reason for the attack appears to be political. Suu Kyi has increasingly attracted the ear of the international community over her failure to speak up on behalf of Rohingya Muslim community. Nearly 700,000 Rohingya have fled a brutal military crackdown in northern Rakhine State into refugee camps in Bangladesh since August.
South African President Jacob Zuma has met the National Prosecuting Authority's deadline and submitted representations on why he should not be prosecuted for fraud and corruption. His lawyers say the representations were made late on Wednesday night. The representations were initially supposed to be submitted in November 2017, but National Director of Public Prosecutions Sean Abrams extended the deadline to January 31, 2018. A ruling of the Supreme Court of Appeal dismissed the application of Zuma and the National Prosecuting Authority to appeal a high court ruling that the decision of the then NPA boss Mokotedimshe to drop the corruption charges against him was irrational. Abrahams has given prosecutors two weeks in which to consider Zuma's representations. Thereafter, he will decide whether to proceed with charging Zuma or not. And finally, United Nations High Commission for Refugees, Filippo Grandi, is to highlight the humanitarian crisis in South Sudan later in the day by visiting a refugee camp in neighboring Kenya. The UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR, says nearly 7 million South Sudanese are in need of assistance. The BBC's Will Ross has the details. All efforts to end four years of war in South Sudan have failed. As ceasefires have been broken, ethnic division as well as mistrust have deepened. The result is Africa's biggest refugee crisis, and the numbers are shocking. One in three people have had to abandon their homes. Two and a half million have fled the country, most of them children. The UN High Commissioner for Refugees, Filippo Grandi, is visiting one of the refugee camps in neighbouring Kenya on Thursday. He'll launch an appeal for one and a half billion dollars to help improve the lives of those fleeing the civil war. Recapping the top stories, the evidence of five previously unreported mass graves of Rohingya Muslims in Myanmar in p- published in a detailed report. South African President Jacob Zuma meets the National Prosecuting Authority's deadline and submits representations on why he should not be prosecuted for fraud and corruption. And finally, United Nations High Commission for Refugees, Filippo Grandi, to highlight the humanitarian crisis in South Sudan when he visits a refugee camp in Kenya. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulu. All right, uh, thank you, Jolani, for that uh, news update. Uh, remember, African Dialogue comes to you every Monday to Thursday at 1100 uh, hours Central African time. You are also welcome to interact with us via Twitter at Channel Africa, Facebook, or you can simply SMS your views uh, to 079-695-7930. If you want to email us, uh, do so at info at channelafrica.org. And if you are listening to us from the United States of America, you may call us on 605-475-1711 at no extra costs. If you want to talk to us via WhatsApp, our number is 063-003327. And if you are listening to us from here in South Africa, the WhatsApp number is 076-300-3327. You can leave your comments there or even voice notes. Now, the president of the Conference of Constitutional uh, Jurisdictions of Africa, who is also South Africa's Chief Justice Mukweng Mukweng, says that the role of the judiciary on the African continent is being now recognized more than ever. He was speaking at the annual CCJA, which was held.
held in KwaZulu-Natal province here in South Africa. The body was established by the African Union to promote the rule of law and good governance and to further entrench human rights values in Africa. The conference saw judicial practitioners from most African countries come together under one roof. Now, Chief Justice Mohang Mohang is going to be joining us in a moment. But first, to give us a context, I am joined on the line by Professor Ritsi Disitwe Poko. He is a constitutional law expert. Uh, good morning, uh, Prof. Welcome to the show. Uh, good morning, Kumbelo. Thank you for having me, and good morning to the listeners as well. All right. Uh, a lot has been said, uh, Prof., about the judiciary and whether it is uh, independent. And there are many cases where judges have been attacked by those who don't agree with their rulings. How important uh, is the independence of the judges in a democratic uh, state, uh, Prof? Uh, Tumelo, we must remember that the judiciary is the cornerstone of our constitutional democracy. And it is very important that it remains independent at all times. Without that independence, we are in a constitutional crisis. All right. In most African countries, uh, Prof, they, you know, there's this uh, tendency of, uh, uh, of the procedure of appointing uh, the chief justice. The appointment is made by the president, who is also the political head of uh, the ruling party. Doesn't this pose a little bit of a problem when uh, trying to assert the independence that we are talking about? Well, Kumbelo, my, my first response is that the, the, the first take a face look at it, one might tend to doubt whether indeed the appointment procedure actually produces an impartial a judge. But when you really close closer now, go and interrogate the entire process, you find that it is transparent to the extent that even there is a procedure that if you are taking that particular judicial office, one of the requirements that if you belong to any particular political party, then your membership should terminate. And members coming to South Africa in specific, you look at the process of appointing a judicial officers administered by the JSC, Political parties are represented, and it is through that process wherein a competent person will be recommended to the president, and the president has a final say. So in, in that regard, the, the process is quite fair, and it, it, it does tell us that we have independent judicial officers. Remember, it doesn't also end there. There are also constitutional safeguards that what is it that we must do or the Constitution provides as a safeguard of that judicial independence. For example, the security of tenure. Sure. So judges should know that tomorrow they might not wake up and hear that your job has ended. That security of tenure is one of the core elements that ensures that our judges are not open to bribes and so on they deliver justice without favor or prejudice. 
And uh, just uh, briefly, Prof, what would you say are some of the challenges uh, that they face, uh, the judicial officers face as uh, they do their jobs? Uh, well, w- w- when Kumbelo, we talk of this uh, judicial independence, remember that uh, it has two legs. At one, we talk at self-independence, entailing that as an individual judge, you must be able to exercise that particular uh, duty in an impartial way, unbiased, without favor, you make clear choices. And this self-independence, mostly it is interrogated through the judge's decisions. Remember the public, it goes and reads most of the judgments. So when you arrive at a particular conclusion, we must be satisfied as the public that the reasons that led to this particular uh, uh, conclusion are at the very least very convincing well substantiated and there's nothing that can be faulted in that way those judgments are credible then when you look at institutional independence now that's the ability of of the court system to control itself the administration of justice as it is well known the appointment of judges as well but coming back to your question now one of the factors you find that if a court has issued a particular judgment which is not in favor of a certain a party or political party then you find that now you hear various statements so from uh, uh, the, that particular political party directed in the judiciary that on its own now it has an element of cohesion so because that some somehow now it sends a message that if you issue certain decisions against us, expect us that we will up on you. So somehow it affects that level of impartiality. That's one of the challenges I think we are facing in South Africa. All right, uh, Professor Ritsidis Tsepoko, a constitutional law expert. Unfortunately, that's all we had time for. Thank you for talking to us here on The Dialogue. It is a pleasure, Kumbelo. Thank you, Ba. All right, uh, that's uh, Professor Risidi Sitsepoko, a constitutional law expert, shedding uh, some light on uh, the judiciary independence and some of the challenges uh, that judges on uh, the continent face as uh, they do their job. Well, to take the discussion further, I am joined on the line by uh, Chief Justice Mohang Mohang. He is uh, the chair of the Conference of uh, Constitutional Jurisdictions in Africa and Chief Justice of uh, South Africa. Good morning. Chief Justice, uh, thank you for joining us here on uh, the African Dialogue. Good morning, my brother, and good morning to your listeners. All right. It has been about nine months uh, since you were elected the chair of uh, the Conference of uh, Constitutional Jurisdictions in Africa. Just give us a sense of uh, what this entity does and your role as uh, the chair. Uh, about three, four years ago, the African Union realized the need for an organized voice from the judiciary of Africa, and they suggested to the judiciary in the continent to establish a body that would bring together uh, 
constitutional courts or supreme courts that, that have constitutional jurisdiction. And that is how the conference of constitutional jurisdictions of Africa came into being. We exist to help give practical expression to the African Charter uh, for Human Rights and People's Rights. We exist to contribute towards the entrenchment of human rights, uh, the entrenchment of good governance, and um, the promotion of the rule of law in the continent. And that's what we've been doing throughout, identifying some of the jurisdictions where judicial independence is not uh, uh, the way it ought to be, where judges are being threatened, uh, where decisions by courts are not always uh, complied with. That has been um, our role, and happily, we have opened a channel together with the African Union Commission that will facilitate an exchange of uh, views in relation to what is it that the heads of state needs to pay particular attention to insofar as uh, the court system in the continent is concerned. Now, in your closing address at the Judges' Conference uh, held recently in KwaZulu-Natal, you have highlighted some of the pressing challenges uh, that uh, judicial practitioners on the continent still face. Can you just take us through some of those immediate challenges uh, that uh, judicial officers uh, face as they do their job? Well, the... Some of the reports we have received relate to some countries where, for instance, in one country, the president of the Constitutional Court found weapons being planted in her in her house, and um, another judge in another country has received the death threats from um, uh, elements that have chosen to not to disclose their identity, and we've had one jurisdiction where. The court decision relating to the electoral outcome was not uh, well received to the results. The judges were called crooks and all sorts of uh, unfortunate statements were made in relation to, to judges. I met one uh, uh, prime minister, for instance, in my recent visit to the African Union, and he was telling me how the, the standard of the judiciary in his country has gone down, and he was even asking me to intervene to think about how I could intervene, we undertook to come and lead a delegation to me so that we can have more uh, focused discussions in relation to how to improve the judiciary in this country so that people do not uh, receive a semblance of justice but do receive quality justice from people who are well equipped to carry out that responsibility. So there's a wide range of, uh, of challenges. Some of them are lack of judicial independence sure. that is influenced by short appointments, short and renewable appointments. Now you can just imagine, if you know that your appointment is, say, for five years, six years, renewable, and you're still young, you have a family, the question is how are you expected by the powers that be, the appointing authorities, to conduct yourself so that your term of office can be renewed. And two, also the remuneration package of some of the judges in other countries is just so low that um, uh, that, that uh, possibility of looking well after yourself and your family um, is, uh, is undermined. And that tends to open up the judiciary to temptations of corruption.
Now, one of the problems that, uh, that we have seen across uh, the continent, uh, uh, Chief Justice, is this uh, uh, procedure that uh, see the Chief Justices uh, being appointed by the President, who is a political head of uh, the ruling party. What do you make of this? Does uh, this become a bit of a problem when it comes to the independence of uh, the judges? Not necessarily. Um, you would recall, for instance, that there is not uh, a practice peculiar to Africa. And look at how judges and even um, chief justices are appointed in the United States of America, uh, one of the oldest uh, democracies in the world. It is only the politicians who are involved in the, in the, in the process of identifying both judges and, um, and, and, and chief justices, because they've got chief justices, uh, instead of judge president in their states, they have chief justices. They, the governor at a state level identify who's going to be uh, chief justice. The president at a national level identifies who's going to be a judge of the, of the U.S. Supreme Court or a federal, one of the federal courts, who's going to be the chief justice. And then it would be um, parliamentarians who interview the candidates and ultimately decide who is best placed to take the, the position. So from where I sit, because even Germany follows the same system, from where I sit, it's not so much about who does the, the appointing. It is more about how transparent the process is and how far process of testing the suitability of a candidate for appointment is and whether there is room as is the case for instance in South Africa for members of the public to send across information to the appointing authority relating to the suitability or otherwise of those being considered for judicial appointment. The problem area has been where as was the case before we became a democracy. The Minister of Justice and the President secretly just decide who is going to be appointed, and the rest, next thing you hear is an announcement. So-and-so is the judge. So-and-so is the judge president. So-and-so is the chief justice. That's a problematic um, judicial appointment process because nobody knows the criterion. Nobody is allowed to send what they know about the suitability or otherwise of a candidate. There is no transparency. That's where the problem lies. Now, having said that, though, Chief Justice, would you say there has been little space for the judicial arm of government on the continent to make its voice heard? Well, there now is a a significant voice um, available to pronounce itself on matters that affect the judiciary. As you probably are aware, I've just returned from the meeting of the, of the African Union Heads of State, sure. which afforded me the opportunity to interact with a representative of the World Bank so that we can reflect on how best judiciaries that do not have the resources and the capacity to carry out their constitutional mandate could be assisted. But it also afforded me the opportunity to interact with functionaries within the African Union Commission so that as the go about their business as the African Union, they have first-hand information. 
in relation to the challenges that confront the judiciaries of Africa and also so that in keeping with our self-imposed mandate as the consensus constitutional jurisdictions of Africa, we can contribute more meaningfully on the realization of a dream of having an Africa where each country enjoys good governance, having an Africa where the culture of human rights is entrenched, having an Africa where the courts always make sure that the elections are not rigged when cases relating to, you know, flaws in the electoral process and there are challenges, then judges would be better equipped to confidently and without any fear, favor or prejudice to adjudicate those cases in a way that is result in the rule of law uh, being, being upheld or observed. So we now have that critical voice that we've been crying out for for a, for a long time, and I was very pleased that for the first time in the history of both the Organization of African Unity and now the African Union, they invited the Chief Justice to the meeting of the heads of, uh, of state so that there can be that meaningful engagement between us and them, and one will have the opportunity as it arises to interact with some of the heads of state, um, reta- former or, or serving heads of state, or officials in their, in their government, so that the voice of the judiciary sure. is put across, particularly in those countries where um, problems are known to exist in relation to the operations of the judiciary. But did you get any sense, Chief Justice, at the AU summit that there is a political will on the part of politicians to better understand the worries and challenges facing judicial officers on the continent? Are they showing any political will to solve these problems, Chief Justice? Well, I, I think there is. Let me give you two examples that would substantiate my, my confidence in that reality that, uh, you know, there is a political will to move progressively towards uh, the realization of that ideal state. One, I've had occasion to spend quite some time with President Paul Kagame of Rwanda when I was in that country, and part of our, in fact, our discussion centered on the role of the judiciary in each African country and in the continent, the challenges that confront um, African countries in relation to good governance and the creation of a climate that would enable Africa to experience sustainable economic growth. We spent quite, oh, well over uh, one hour, 20 minutes dealing with, uh, with this issue. And now he is the chairperson of the African Union. And two, as you probably are aware, the theme of the African Union for this year is winning a fight against corruption, a sustainable path to Africa's uh, transformation. And the champion of the theme of the year is President uh, Buhari of Nigeria. Uh, believe it or not, um, people broadly believe that ever since he took uh, office, he has made quite remarkable progress in fighting corruption that uh, Nigeria has become known for for a long time. And they couldn't have chosen a better person to champion the cause of eradicating uh, corruption within the African continent. But this is the point. In his acceptance speech, President Buhari said the critical role that the judiciary has to play 
in the African continent in rooting out corruption must be recognized, and therefore the judiciary must be allowed that space to fulfill its constitutional mandate properly. And two, he said corruption-busting agencies must also be strengthened, they must be capacitated so that they can help root out corruption in the African continent, and finally, the criminal justice system must also be properly equipped so that it's able to carry out its mandate. Now, from there, we as the body of judges were then able, in our interaction with the functionaries of the African Union Commission, to say, make sure that one of the projects for this year is how problems that exist in African judiciary can be identified and addressed so that the African judiciaries are properly capacitated to help root out corruption and make sure that uh, the fight is won. Sure. So that, the willpower is there. The door has been open for dialogue, no meaningful engagement between the African judiciary and African heads of state and more importantly also the African Union Commission, which is the engine for operationalizing those decisions that are taken by the by the heads of state at the continental level. Sure. All right, we are going to take a quick break, Chief Justice. When we return, we will continue with our conversation. Stay with us. Channel Africa has good news for you. We have extended our reach. If you have an iPad or iPhone, Download the Channel Africa iOS app at itunes.apple.com. If you have a cell phone, then get our Android app at Google Store. Get the latest news from Africa. Get the Channel Africa app. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. All right, uh, welcome back uh, to Channel Africa. This is an African uh, dialogue uh, with me, Kumbero Mungerere, and today we are in conversation with uh, the Chief Justice of South Africa, Justice Mohang Mohang. He is also the Chair of the Conference of Constitutional Jurisdictions in Africa. Now, welcome back, uh, Chief Justice. Now, recently the High Court in Kenya has overturned uh, election results in uh, that country and instructed uh, that they should be a rerun due to due to some of the irregularities in the election process. What did you make of that, uh, Chief Justice? Is this something that other judges on the continent can emulate? No, it, it was an unprecedented decision as some, some uh, people in Africa and around the world have described it. But here is the bottom line. The, the strength of judicial independence does not lie in the possibility to make decisions that are unfavorable to those in government. It lies in fairness and justice. And fairness and justice can either mean that those in government succeed or lose. Part of the problem, and we need to educate our people, Sure. People tend to think you've really demonstrated independence when you almost always rule against the government. Uh, courts are not against anybody. Courts are against wrong, wrongdoing. Courts are against preaching the Constitution and the law and making sure that disputes between different parties, whoever they may be, 
are resolved without fear, favor, or prejudice. So we really need to work hard to help our people understand that you don't become, in quote, a judicial hero because you are consistently going out of your way to find that this government or certain people that appear not to be liked. That said, you would be aware also that they were severely criticized by some politicians for having decided against uh, those who had succeeded at the time. Sure. And it became necessary because of the severity of the criticism that was leveled against uh, our colleagues and some of the remarks that could be understood as, um, as having been intended to incite the public against the judiciary. It became necessary for me as president of the CCJA to issue a statement in support of my colleagues, which I sent not only to my colleagues but also to the media in Kenya. And uh, I'm told that it had quite a positive uh, impact because it was known that it was a collective of the judiciary in the African continent that was speaking, expressing um, concern about the remarks attributed to some of the leaders there, calling uh, colleagues, uh, referring to colleagues as crooks and all sorts of the unfortunate uh, labels that uh, were attached to them. Now, well, here in South Africa, Chief Justice, uh, the general sentiment seems, seems to be that uh, threats are fewer, but there has uh, b- been a lot of criticism leveled against uh, judicial officers in the past. In fact, recently, you have also come under heavy criticism when some uh, political parties, particularly the economic freedom fighters, saying it was uh, unacceptable that you should have expressed a dissenting view according to them, when the fellow judges ruled that the National Assembly failed to hold President Jacob Zuma to account after the Nkandla ruling. What do you make of uh, this kind of criticism, Chief Justice? Uh, what do you make of it? Well, my point is this. You see, everybody who uh, occupies a leadership role must know that it is part and parcel of the package to be criticized by those who feel the pain as a result of the, the, the decision that you render. So it is normal for those who are frustrated by your disagreement with their viewpoint to be so disappointed as to want to, to, to criticize you and criticize you very seriously. So my point has always been, and it will continue to be, it bites when you have high hopes not to secure a unanimous outcome. So, when some people speak strongly, when some judges speak strongly against the position that is favorable to you, it's only normal for you to be critical. So I'm not worried at all. I know I'm trained as a lawyer, I'm trained as a judge, I'm the Chief Justice of South Africa. I know how the system works. The public and parties are free to express their views, but I don't get led by those who do not even operate within the, the court system. I understand the system, but I celebrate the freedom of expression as enjoyed and exercised by the parties and everybody else in South Africa. My point is this. There is a reason why our oath of office and our affirmation of office say 
We are to act in terms of the Constitution and the law without fear, favor, or prejudice. Why fear? Fear because some would want to, to induce fear in the judges so that the next time they have cases, judges must be afraid to speak against their position even if they think it is wrong. Judges must be intimidated. When so-and-so is a party, you must be frightened. Oh, they are going to rubbish me. Oh, they are going to tweet about me. That is the reason why we are formed in our oath of office. Do it without fear, favor, or prejudice. So my, my statement to colleagues will always be, remember, there are those who will try to intimidate you. Remember... There are those who will praise you whenever you do what supports them in a way that could easily cause you in the future to always decide in their favor so that you can be praised. We are judges, not celebrities. We are here to dispense of a very sensitive issue called justice. And if you ever have a fear because of criticism, however, however severe, you don't sure. deserve to be a judge. If you posture in such a way as to attract praise and be celebrated by people all the time, regardless of what your own individual view of what justice points you to, then you are breaching your oath of office because you are favorably disposed to others so that they in turn can show you favor maybe by writing favorable articles about you or commenting favorably about you. Sometimes they will praise you fine. Sometimes they'll rubbish you fine, but never forget your oath of office, never forget your affirmation of office. That's the bottom line. So to sum it up or to sum it all up, I'm never worried about criticism. Remember, I was baptized with fire when I was appointed to this position. So there is nothing that can shake me in the execution of my responsibilities as I deem appropriate. And I'm not about to open myself to any lecture from anybody about how to do my work. All right. In the past few years, Chief Justice, we have seen African governments threatening to withdraw from the International Criminal Court, claiming that the court is singling out only Africans for prosecution. What is the position of the Conference of Constitutional Jurisdictions of Africa with regards to this, Chief Justice? At the meeting of the Executive Bureau of uh, that body, the CCJA, last week, what we discussed was it's necessary for the African judiciary to begin to reflect on the possibility of the African uh, continent withdrawing from the ICC and the possibility of them seeking to know what uh, the CCJA thinks about that move and therefore we need to take it upon ourselves to do some research and to reflect on the pros and cons of doing so but here is a point that i have expressed several times before for the purpose of establishing the icc equivalent in the african continent i think with regard to judicial capacity we have judges who are well equipped to shoulder the responsibility Here lies the challenge, and I am not able to say whether uh, the answer is 
is, is positive or negative. The challenge is, do African leaders have the willpower to subject all of them without exception to the jurisdiction of that court as and when circumstances seem to be to dictate that they should be subjected to the jurisdiction of that of that court. Sure. And two, will the collective of those who are not involved in whatever it is that requires that a person appears before the, 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 the criminal court, will the collective be willing to exert the necessary pressure on their colleagues to make sure that justice is done, particularly when there are allegations of genocide or one human rights abuse of another by either the head of state or senior government officials. That's the bottom line. When we get to the point where objectively African people are satisfied that the willpower exists to subject one another to the jurisdiction of that court and to respect whatever outcome, favorable or otherwise, that that court would render, then I don't think we should be worried about or concerned about the establishment of that court. Let's just make sure that the conditions that are necessary for a functional and effective equivalent of the ICC to be in place do in fact exist. Once we are satisfied, then uh, it's up to them. They may come ahead. And also to, to satisfy themselves that the resources will be made available for that court to function. All right, let's talk about this uh, this issue of settling battles, uh, political battles in uh, court, uh, Chief uh, Justice. Uh, do you think there is a thin line uh, in terms of how far the arm of uh, the judiciary can be used here? Well, I, I think ideally we should get to the point where political players in the executive and in the legislative arm of the state shoulder the responsibility fully of addressing satisfactorily the responsibilities that have been placed on them by our constitution and our laws. I think we need to move fast to get to the point where mechanisms are in place to resolve whatever disputes or disagreements uh, our leaders in the legislative and executive arms of the state might have. Um, um, but for as long as we have not yet reached that level of maturity as a nation, as a country, for as long as we're still developing our institutions to that level, I think it's best that courts be resorted to as often as possible because it's a constitutional mechanism that exists to help resolve disputes. It's a much better, a superior option to, to, to resort to than to have civil war or to have people shoot one another. At least it's a peaceful and civil way and constitutionally functioned mechanism for resolving differences and disputes. So it is to be welcome, but I think all of us need to our country to encourage political players to resolve their problems internally. Even political parties, from time to time you find that one political party is pulling itself this or the other way before the court of law. It's not ideal, 
So the sooner we get to the ideal situation where the necessary capacities and mechanisms are in place for institutions and parties to resolve their problems internally, the better for our democracy. Because here lies the danger. You will soon get to the point where you have, as a matter of regularity, been bringing uh, uh, cases of a highly political nature to the cause that you inadvertently politicize the court system. Before long, you find even judges being divided, divided by political issues, others suspecting that this group of judges is favorably disposed to this um, ideological outlook, they are favorably disposed to this political party, and uh, this other group of judges are favorably disposed to the other political outlook or political party. It, 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 it will be unfortunate if we get to that point. And the way to avoid it is by lessening the frequency of matters that are referred to the court without, without an indication that much was done sure. to try and resolve a dispute of a political nature internally. All right, uh, Chief uh, Justice uh, thank you for having been our guest here on African Dialogue. We highly appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much, my brother. All right, uh, that's uh, Chief uh, Justice Mokwang Mokwang. He is uh, the chair of uh, the Conference of Constitutional uh, Jurisdictions in Africa. Uh, tune in again to Channel Africa to catch another informative uh, installment of African uh, Dialogue. Uh, remember, African Dialogue comes to you every Monday to Thursday at 1100 hours Af- Central African time. You are welcome to interact with us via Twitter handle at Channel Africa, Facebook, or you can simply SMS your views to 0823 if you want to email us you can do so at info at channel, the time now is 15 minutes before 12 hours central african time it is time for our economic news with amanda machake